Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. I didn't hear exactly. What was the testimony about adoption? I didn't hear it real clearly. What was it exactly? You have new names? What are they? Not first, Not first names. Okay, okay. I think they would know the last. All right. You know, adoption is so amazing. I'm, as you probably all know, I'm adopted. My, my Greek heritage is an adopted Greek heritage. And just the other day, I was sitting there with Joyce, and, and she had made, I had made cayena. You know what cayena is? It's really simple. It's just scrambled eggs with feta in it. It's absolutely amazing. If you've never tried it, it's really good. And I was thinking, if I hadn't been adopted into a Greek family, I would have never eaten all that marvelous food. <laughs> you know. And I told her, I said, I feel kind of like, that's like trivializing it. And she said, are you kidding? That's like one of the best parts, right? Well, then the more I thought about that, I thought, what an incredible you know, insight is possible there. Because to say that because of my world, it's had nothing to do with the text, by the way. Um, uh, because of my adoption in, 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 in the physical sense, in, in, in my Greek heritage, I've been exposed to so many wonderful, wonderful things. Our adoption as children into the kingdom, all that would have, we'd never have been exposed to, all that we would have never, that's fine, all, you're, you're fine, you're good, all that we would have never received if we hadn't been adopted into a family. Wow, that's a mind blower. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Um, we've been focusing on the subject of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the events of Acts chapter 2, which begin with verse 1. So let's look at it again. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we have so much, so much to be thankful for, Lord. Pray, Father, you just give us minds and hearts to receive all you have in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Two weeks back, we started this um, concentration, focus on this particular part of the book of Acts, um, we, we, and we broke it into three pieces. We talked first about the day of Pentecost. What in the world was that? What did that mean? We learned that it was uh, one of the three major feasts of the Old Testament. It was a reminder of the Exodus experience coming out of Egypt, whereas Passover focused on the beginning, Pentecost, or weeks, focused on the end, when they came into the land. It talked about harvest. Then last week, we looked at the second part, when Luke wrote, when the day of Pentecost had come, or was fully come, or was being fulfilled. And we learned that while the day of Pentecost was a celebration, a memorial, it was more than a feast, more than just a memorial. It was a promise. We talked a lot about promises. It was a promise that Jesus had told his disciples about again and again. And it was a promise to which Jesus himself attributed a great deal of importance. Just, you know, quickly to summarize some of the things he said about this promise. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And then in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I said to you. Right? And then in chapter 15 of John, Jesus said, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And then in chapter 16 of John, and, and if this doesn't convince you of the importance of Pentecost, I do not know what would. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. 
Now, what could possibly be good about Jesus going away? That doesn't make any sense at all, right? It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And then, of course, in Acts 1, verse 4, Jesus said, Wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me. So the day of Pentecost, when Luke writes, when it had come, it was fulfillment of a promise, right? We also talked last week, and I'm going over this because I, th- I just think it is so critical for our understanding, about the radical change that the day of Pentecost brought about. And it brought about three very very radical, distinct changes in the way God dealt with people. First of all, the Holy Spirit was poured out and came upon the believers and filled them. God came to dwell within people. Right? That is radical. You read the Old Testament, you only find one hint of anything like like that. And that's when when David says in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So David had some understanding in a completely unique way, of the Holy Spirit's presence in a continual way. Well, now God's Spirit is being poured into the life of every single believer. That's wild. That's the first really, really radical change. The second radical change, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the community of believers in a collective sense, and the church is born. That's why we use that phrase, because God's Spirit came to dwell within the body of believers. And we touched on both of these back in our study of 1 Corinthians, way back whenever that was. In chapter 3, he talks about the, Paul talked about the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 6, about the individual Corinthian believer, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So both that individual sense and the collective corporate sense of the Holy Spirit abiding in people. Total change from the way God had ever dealt with people before. And then the third big change was the inclusion of the Gentiles. How totally mind-boggling that must have been to the early church, made up entirely of Jews, who as far as they were concerned, the Gentiles were just like not even in the equation, right? But Peter brings them into the picture when he quotes from the prophet Joel saying, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. So that was last week. Well, this morning we come to the third part of that first verse that opens up the picture to the day of Pentecost when it says they were all together in one accord. That's probably the most common translation of of that verse. In one accord, um, some say of one mind, all together in some way. Well, what exactly does that mean? They were all together in one accord. What did it mean to them? And lastly, what does it mean to us? Well, let's begin with the question, what is this expression, one accord, all together in one accord? Because it's just one word in, in Greek. They were all together in one accord. It really raises a question for us, and that's the question of authenticity. Because I think if there's one thing that probably all of us share is that in our experience of Christ, in our experience of faith, we want our faith to be authentic. I don't think any, any of us, I don't think, want to be here just, you know, to go through the motions or check off the box or, to, you know, you got nothing better to do on Sunday morning. That's not true, you know, no. If our faith isn't authentic, we probably all have something better to be doing right now. But if our faith is authentic, if it's real, that changes the equation. So we want an authenticity in our gathering. There want to be a, a reality that is experienced when we come together. So when Luke is describing this thing, one accord, he uses a word, and it's, it's a marvelous word. He uses the word homothemazon. 
almost imaban. It's one of my favorite Greek words because for one thing, it's really easy to say. That one last week was a killer. I'm not even going to try to repeat it. Uh, but this is a really easy word to say. Um, it comes like many Greek words from two smaller words. Yeah. Um, omu. Omu, right? Which is from omos. And by the way, both of these parts of this word you may recognize, right? Omos, or omu, uh, comes into English as homogenized. When you buy homogenized milk, you're buying milk where the milk and the fat have not simply been mixed together, but they've actually been processed so they are no longer separable. They are of the exact same nature. You cannot separate them. Hence, they are homogenous of one nature. We speak of a homogenous group of people, of people connected so closely they really can't be broken apart. Right? So it means the same. Omus means the same or one. And then comes the other part of the word, which we did make mention just in passing a few weeks ago, and that is the word thimos, thimos, or in its root, thimo. And that's a really, really old word. Now, just to make the note, why do we spend so much time talking about these, these words? Well, obviously, the text was written originally in Greek, and if we're going to understand it fully, that's a good place we have to go. But something even more than, you know, words carry, like, baggage, some words have meaning that is so bound up in the word that no matter how you use it, that meaning is still kind of there. You know, there are certain words in conversation that no matter what they might mean, technically you would never use them because there's just a sense that comes with that word. Some words are so laden with a particular meaning that no matter how you're using it, you're never going to get very far away from that meaning. Well, these older words are that way. They never got very far from that meaning. And this word thimos or thimos is, is that way in the extreme, right? It means, if you go back to the very, very, very oldest written Greek, it's the essence of life. It's heat. It's fire. It's sacrifice. It's wrath. The words used over 200 times in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it almost always describes anger, wrath, um, a sacrifice, the fire of sacrifice. The best way, I think, to, to summarize this word, those of us who are parents, you'll probably remember an incident at least once, probably more than once, when for some reason you perceived that your child was in extreme danger. Maybe they were approaching like a pool or they were approaching the edge of a you know, precipice or something. Something was happening and your child was in incredible danger. What happened to your breath? It changed. When that kind of extreme emotion is on the line, your breath changes. Uh, have you ever been a bit mad? Like, I mean, you were like seriously mad, like you were ready to go, go to it with somebody? Your breath changed. That's that, especially if it was a survival kind of a situation. Your breath changes. That's what this word themos touches on, and it's common to all humanity, that kind of very primordial animal instinct, survival. Um, another example I would use, and, and, and I'm, I hope this, this resonates. Um, it's timely because we're only a, a few days away from you know, June 6th, the anniversary of the D-Day landings, the Normandy invasion. But if you remember that great film, Saving Private Ryan, most of us, I think, have seen it. There's a scene really early in that movie that I didn't really get for a long... It's in the middle of that massive, 
like 20 minute long battle scene at the beginning. And if you notice the way the, the scene is done, most of it is zeroing in on faces or, or, or what is said. There's real clear focus in every scene but one. Every moment of that whole 20 minutes is clearly focused but one moment. There's one moment where everything visual blurs. Everything visual gets kind of fuzzy and you really can't focus on anything and what comes to the forefront is the sound of a man's heavy breathing. And it's the sound of someone trying to survive. And that breath dominates the emotion of that scene. And that really doesn't go away. It's incredibly, incredibly the way it's presented. But that expressed as this themos, this very core desire for life, right? So when you put those two together, Omu, same, and Themos, it's that very central driving passion that links us as a body of believers. You think about, well, one, well you, you need one more example of, of, of this word, Themos, that may help. We talked about this before, because the word's almost always translated negatively. Like it, lust is one of the ways it's translated. Wrath is another way it's translated. Uh, the consuming fire of sacrifice, right? Is, that's not necessarily negative, but you get the idea. And then Jesus comes along in Luke 22, and he says to the disciples, with an overwhelming themos, I have overwhelmingly themosed. I can make a verb out of it. I have overwhelmingly themosed. He's repetitive. He uses an emphatic form of the word, and then he repeats it. With an overwhelming desire, I have overwhelmingly desired to eat this Passover. It is what was driving him. It's the, it's the emotion that carried him to Gethsemane, carried him to the cross. It's that primordial kind of thing. And that's what this group of believers in the upper room, starting back in Acts 1, has in common. This was not an otherwise homogenous group. Yeah, they're all Jews, but that's about where it ends. If you think about it, just one example, in that group, in the upper room, you have Simon. Not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot, Zelotis, right? Who were the Zealots? They were people who, they hated two things. They hated Romans, and even more than they hated Romans, they hated Jews who cooperated with Romans. In the, like, for example, Matthew the tax collector. Here you have a guy who probably spent most of his adult life with a knife under his cloak looking for either a Roman or a Matthew to stick it in. And Matthew's right across the room. What's going to bring these two guys together? And, and Matthew lives. There's got to be something greater than the emotional drive and the passion of a religious zealot like Simon. There was something greater there. There was a greater thing that they shared. They shared something that transcended their political differences, their religious differences, even their identity. Because it was, think about it, it was Simon the Zealot, that's his identity, and Matthew the tax collector, that's his identity. Even transcended their identities. Something that was powerful enough that they could share it in common. They had a common Themos, a common, common passion for the things of the Lord that struck, that struck at their very essence, their very survival, right? It was important enough to override all the other stuff, right? So what did that mean to the early church to have this in common, to have this common 
Themos. Well, let, let's just kind of follow through the chapter quickly and see what happened. Um, we know the Holy Spirit was poured out, that incredible manifestation of the tongues of fire resting upon each one of them. They start speaking in a language they don't know, but the guys out in the street know. That's weird, okay? And they got people out in the street are saying, what's going on here? They're speaking the praises of God in languages from all over the Roman Empire, all across the, the Mediterranean basin. What's going on? Some people suggest that it's not anything other than some people that have been drinking. So in verse 14, Peter stands up and he responds, explaining what's happening. But it's so critical to note in verse 14, it says, Peter taking his stand with the 11. We kind of breeze over that a lot, don't we? We're so excited about getting to what Peter's going to say about Joel and about the Spirit of God being poured out on all flesh and all the manifestation. We just kind of skip over that part that Peter stood up, but he did not stand up alone. He stood up with 11 others who, by very diverse in their background, all now had something common. They had an understanding of what Jesus was talking about when he said, the Father will send a helper. I will send you another helper. They shared the presence and the experience of the Spirit of God now within them. So we're not just talking Peter. We're talking Peter surrounded by 11 guys backing him up. How I would love to have been part of that conversation. When in light of what was being said out in the street, in light of what was happening inside the room, the 12 got together and said, okay, who's going to speak up? Who's going to be the one to respond to these people? Peter, I guess it's on you. That must have been quite the conversation. So Peter stands up with the 11, sharing that common bond of understanding of what the Holy Spirit had just done. And Peter goes through the prophecy of Joel. He talks about the resurrection of the Lord. He said, and his words are confrontational. It's so essential that they stood with Peter because Peter, remember the same guy who denied the Lord just you know days before, is now very confrontational. Verse 33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. What Peter is saying is everything you just heard in that room is proof that Jesus, the Nazarene, was who he said he was because if Jesus had been resurrected, if Jesus hadn't ascended to the Father, none of this would have happened. It's proof. And then he goes on a few verses later to say this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's about as confrontational as it gets. Tell a bunch of Jews, serious, devout, religious Jews. That's how Luke described them. They were devout Tell a bunch of religious views that you just got done crucifying your own God. That's not going to go over real well. And yet 12 men who were fearing for their lives just a few days earlier have no problem standing up and saying it publicly. The crowd is pierced to their heart. 3,000 people confess Christ. They're saved. They're baptized. The church explodes. You think we got building problems? They got 3,000 people. And all they got is a room for 120. The day progresses, and we come to verse 42. This is kind of the end of that first day. First day, day of Pentecost. This is a summary of where the church is at, and it is an expression of omothimadon, of a shared passion. Verse 42 reads this way. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's the early church. That is who they were. 
If you'll allow me a, a little bit of grammar here, um, Luke doesn't say, this is so critical, Luke does not say they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's not what he says. Listen for the distinction, please. Luke does not say they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Luke said they were continually devoting themselves. Now, in English, that sounds to our ears like a mere accommodation of past tense speech. If you want to put this in the past, you have to word it this way. In Greek, that's not necessary. You don't have to do that. You don't have to add the word were. When you add the word were, the verb of being, again, forget the grammar, when you add the word were, you're moving what is happening, right, from a time sense to a state of being. Luke is describing who they were. They were people of the apostles' teaching. They were people of fellowship. They were people of the breaking of bread and prayer. That's who they were. That's this common drive that they share. This is the early church. They were about the apostles' teaching. They wanted desperately to know what the truth was. That's where we have to start. It, 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 it concerns me, and I, I never want to be critical of another church, another fellowship, but, but I, think, I think it needs to be said. I am very concerned about a Christian experience that wants to start with experience and then consider itself with teaching. It starts with an understanding of what is written, God's word instructing us. That is always the starting point. And they didn't have the New Testament, so they were dependent on the apostles. So they were focused on the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they were identified with fellowship. They were about being with one another. You can tell, don't apply it to somebody else, apply, apply it to yourself, apply it to myself. You can tell what I care about by who I spend my time with. It is as simple as that. You can tell what, I, what, I, what I'm strengthened by, what I'm encouraged by, what I'm instructed by, by who I spend my time with. You can, tell what, you can tell what my priorities are in life by who I spend my time with. True of every one of us. Their very being was now caught up with fellowship. And again, these are 3,000 strangers. They had even less in common than the twelve. There are people from all over the Roman Empire that show up for a festival, and the next thing you know, they're a festival. I mean, they're a church. 3,000 of them. And they share this in common. Their worship consisted of the breaking of bread. They never got away from the Lord's suffering. That is the foundation of all that we say and do. Frankly, that puts my, my concerns about the building in perspective. Pastor Joyce and I, we talk a lot about how are we going to solve this building issue? We go back and forth, and it seems to animate the vast majority of our conversation these days. But it's secondary. It's secondary. We relate to our Lord through engaging with his broken and resurrected body. And finally, prayer. Interestingly, when the word omothimavon was used in the first chapter, describing them in the, day of, in the upper room, the day before Pentecost, they were dedicated to one thing, prayer. And now they're still dedicated to prayer. It's still the foundation upon which they move.
Then verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. I thought about this, this verse a lot this week. Everybody kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. We tend to turn that verse around. In my own thinking, I was that. We turn that verse around. Um, because, but, I mean, come on, let's be honest. Wouldn't we like to see somebody raised from the dead? That'd be cool. Wouldn't it be amazing if we saw like people being healed from sicknesses just like in the... That, let's be honest, that would be really cool. And we fall into the trap of thinking that if that happened, boy, what a sense of awe would result from it, right? But that's not how Luke describes it. Luke said they felt a sense of awe and the signs and wonders came. See, the, the sense of awe came first. Well, if the sense of awe comes before all the signs and wonders, where does the sense of awe come from? Before all the miracles. How, how can you stand in awe of God before you see all the great and marvelous things he does? The answer's in the question. We're talking about God. The word awe, phobos, comes right in English as phobia. It is a legitimate fear. And I think before we move forward anywhere, especially in the expectation of any kind of signs and wonders, we have to take time to consider with whom we do business. Fear of the one who holds our very souls in his hands. I mean, it's, it's, it's marvelous to stand outside and think about the creative power of God. Many of you know I've, been, I've, I've stepped into the world of beekeeping. It's really wild to just stand there little box and stand there absolutely the bees come and the end result of this is magnificent honey only God could come up with something like that right and they just bees are doing what they're supposed to do and the more I learn about it, the more amazed I am that it works it's incredible it's all part of God's creation right that's awe-inspiring the God who created everything but it's even more awe-inspiring to know that that God holds my very soul in the palm of his hands and if it turns where am I that's awe-inspiring. Or if he goes that option. But see, he doesn't even have to do that. All he has to do is that. And I'm gone. I'm gone eternity. Awe. They had a feeling of awe. Verses 44 and 45, they shared their possessions. We're all familiar, I think, with that. And I think we sometimes make a mistake of seeing that as normative rather than as a response. It was a response that verse 42 brought them to. And then finally, verses 46 and 47, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. They took over the temple? That's confrontational. With one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with glad and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved, right? What does it mean to us? Well, for, obviously it means we have to get on the same page they were on. We have to recognize the things that make us different, recognize the things that we share, the singular thing that we share, till we come to the place of that common passion, when who we are as a body of believers is no longer a secondary concern in our life. Who I am in Christ, who we are as a body of believers is no longer a secondary concern. It is the thing that drives me more than anything else. 
We need to keep our focus on the primary things, the teaching of Scripture, the essential need for fellowship, the centrality of Jesus in prayer, and then ask God what we should be doing right now. I don't necessarily think that what we should be doing right now is selling all houses and living together and you know, doing I don't think so. That's not the need right now. The need of our time, the need of our society, the need of our culture is so drastically different. Frankly, I haven't told this to my wife yet. You're the first to hear this. Um, I will tell her afterwards. That I have found the upside to the struggle we have with our building. There's an upside to it. And that is, it is, and we're still very frustrated. Don't get me wrong. There's an upside. It's, folk, it's forcing us to ask questions about exactly who we are. In order for us to properly construct or find or locate or develop the best building we can for our needs, we have to figure out what our needs are. And that means asking who we are. And so we're coming to a place, at least in the leadership of the church, and I hope in your hearts and minds as well, of asking ourselves exactly who we are. You heard Pastor Joyce use the word discipleship several times this morning. It's forcing us to look back at the centrality of this. We've talked about it a lot in years past. But once again, it's brought to the forefront. How do we disciple ourselves and our community? It's forcing us to ask that question with a little more vigor. Which is really good, because that's exactly where the church in Acts was. That's exactly where those 3,000 people were. Asking themselves, asking of the Lord, who are we and what's next? So unfortunately, this doesn't have, excuse the red eye, this doesn't have a, when you leave here this morning, do the following four things. No, this doesn't have an ending like that. What this has is a request. The people of our fellowship spend some really serious time in prayer. Asking that, that the leadership of the church, most especially Pastor Joyce and I, will have the wisdom to know how we move forward. How we move forward in response to the Spirit of God who dwells within us. And then how each of us as individuals, each of us as individuals, how we move forward according to the Spirit of God who lives within us. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. Father, um, we read about the day of Pentecost and the incredible events that happened, Lord. And we read about, you know, the speaking in tongues, and that raises all kinds of questions. And we read about the signs and the wonders that, that Joel talked about, and that raises all kinds of questions, Father. And I know, Lord, that we need to, to, to speak of those things and talk about those things, Father. But I think there's something so much more uh, essential that we have to get first. And that is the reality of Christ in us individually and corporately. Father, we know that, that that's going to look different in every generation, in every situation, what the Spirit of God does in us and through us. We know there are some common things, Father. Your holiness to be manifested in our hearts and minds and lives, Lord. Your love for the lost to be manifested in us and through us, Father. Your love for us will be manifested in us and through us. Um, so, Father, that's our prayer this morning. It's, it's really simple, Lord, as we... Um, go on to the rest of our week, go to our work, our family, whatever we're doing, Lord, that there would be a renewed um, connection to something you've already put in us. Father, we're not asking this morning for anything to happen that hasn't already happened. You have come to dwell in us by your Spirit, Father. We ask you to give us ears to hear it. 
Hearts to hear it. Hands and feet to obey. Jesus. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.